Hey there, and welcome to You Talk. We connect with extraordinary people across Canada and ask them about their stories, passions, and experiences. I'm your host, Ryan Funk. A new award-winning documentary directed by Jennifer Holness tackles the often dangerous portrayals of black women in media and the shift in North American beauty standards towards embracing black female aesthetics. Jennifer sat down with me to discuss the film and how we can improve representation in our media. Hi, my name is Jen Holness. I'm a writer, producer, and director, and I directed the film Subjects of Desire. Um, I actually have uh, my own production company, Hungry Eyes Media, and I've been sort of making film and television for the last, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> That's something I'm, I'm wanting to maybe uh, pursue in the future, get into more like productions and documentaries and thing. So what first got that bug for making media and documentaries? Mm. So you know what it is, is that so um, when I grew up, my mother, we were, there was three of us and we were not, we didn't have a lot of money. And so we didn't really, I didn't really understand how to make films or any way to get into the industry and so forth. I met my partner at York University and he was in film studies. And, and that was what kind of opened up the idea that I could work in film and television. But when I first started out, um, I was, um, I graduated from York University with a specialized honors in policy analysis and political science, a fancy political science degree. And I decided that I wasn't going to go into politics or go become a lawyer, any of those kinds of things. And I just decided I was going to try film. And that was that was the thing. But what the backstory, though, was that growing up, I, I would write at home. I would and I was a completely avid reader. And I, you know, the. I didn't actually have those connections or see those connections. Um, but then I read, for example, Stephen King on writing. And the the thing that the fact that I was writing as a kid and that I was reading as a kid, that there was a natural like push um, in me around telling story. And so at some point, like I said, when I graduated, I decided to move and pursue that. And then I started out producing primarily. And um, and then in my producing, I was always story editing. I was always writing stuff. And then I realized that I, I you know, that I wanted to write, which is what I had been doing from a kid. And, and then I decided that and I started doing that. And it helped that I had actually taught myself how to produce so that I was able to do the, the writing and the producing. And then on the documentary side, my very first professional project, I co-directed a documentary about Black Canadian history. And I was really, really jazzed about that project. And we did it with the National Film Board and it really turned out well. And I wanted to direct more uh, documentaries, but you know, I had three kids. Um, I was writing drama. I was, um, you know, producing drama and, and I was also producing other people's documentaries because I always loved documentaries, always kept a foot in it. So even though I wasn't directing, I was producing other people's docs. And then I guess uh, in 2017, um, I made a decision that, you know, my kids were older I really had sort of probably not pursued this element of filmmaking, you know, directing documentaries that I really loved and that I think I was, you know, good at. 
um, I hadn't done that. And, uh, and I decided it was time. And so that is how I ended up like after making my first documentary in 2000 to make this other, my second documentary, but a feature this time, it starting in 2017 and delivering it in 2021. <laughs> Isn't that just fun how like your path can like just lead you to a certain spot that you didn't initially expect to reach? My entire career is like that because like I said, what I went to university for, I completely didn't do. But you know, I think what it is, was being brave. You know, when I graduated, my mother, I was invited to actually submit to law school. My grades were really good. I had like the, the program I pursued. I could either go into business, like I could go for an, you know, an MBA or I could go for on the law side. I, I didn't want to do that, but uh, I think I was brave. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I was brave. I, I decided at a very young age, like, no, that's not what I want to do. I, and I don't know what this film thing is, but I, it feels right. I went with my gut. I went with my instinct. And then I'm a really hard worker. And so what I did was I just, I had to figure out what make producing films was about. I had to figure out how do you write for, so I, I, I did that. You know, we didn't have a lot of mentors. We didn't have a lot of people who um, could support us. And uh, we didn't know anybody in the industry, um, but it was, that was not that important. What was important was how do I figure out how to do this work well so that I could make a living from it. So yeah, that was, that was the assignment, I guess. <laughs> Smaller production companies, they really turn, at least in my opinion, some of the most profound work or work that really hits you close to home. Like, it, it's definitely something you're really invested in the communities and people. Like, you know what's going on. You, you got to feel for everything that's going on. I've always been very community minded. And I do think that we have a problem in this country where we have, we're really predominantly publicly funded and we don't support the voices of the, all the people that make up the public. We haven't historically. And that's been a problem. And so, being outside of the story engine of Canada, like in terms of my community and any focus on our stories, um, has really, it, it, it is a painful thing. I mean, people, everybody, every group wants to be seen and heard. We want to believe and know that we count. And being a part of the media world, that's, that's it. You know, um, someone told me, and it's brilliant, it was Dr. Charmaine Nelson, she said, we know about slavery, most people, 99% of people know about slavery, predominantly because of the movies they've seen. Very few of us like randomly will go into a bookstore and say, hey, man, I'm going to read this treatise on slavery, right? But yet we know a bunch of stuff about slavery it comes from movies, you know? And so that's the power of media. That's the power of story and cinema. And so imagine spending most of your life where so few people have been given the opportunity to tell stories about your community, you know, and when they have done it, it's been very narrow. So it's maybe just been about slavery. It's not been about the nuances of, you know, like, what might you might go through if you look like this as a black girl or if you if you come from this household as a black boy, you know what I mean? And so 
I have been always community minded because my community has always felt disenfranchised from the larger system of media and what we get to tell and who gets to tell it. So it's, so I think though, oftentimes that's where the beauty of the unknown comes. You know, you get like a story that takes you into a world or into a space that you thought you knew. And then you realize something incredibly pivotal or something personal. I mean, there's just a lot of story out there that, and there's an exciting times and um, where we're now starting to see the value. I mean, I didn't watch it, but all these folks watch squid game. I hate, you know, I hate murdering shows. I just, it's (laughs) setting to me, you know, I I read the hunger games because my kids were reading it, but I couldn't watch the movies because I just was so traumatized from the books. Um, I don't like that extreme violence, but like with squid game, for example, everybody watched this show and, you know, and guess what? That's because someone recognized story out, like out of that community, out of those creators was valuable to the larger and it, and it engaged people. Right. And then that's what we have to do. We have to expand um, our story world. And that comes out of community. Representation in media is so powerful. Like, uh, and Canto that recently came out has been amazing for the Latin communities. Being able to see those stories, see people who look like you and you can relate to, it's it's so powerful. And I mean, for individuals like myself, we've had people in media who, who look like me for so long. So it's great to see, I guess it's a, a cultural renaissance in a sense. So subjects of desire, what can you tell me about your film. So Subjects of Desire is about Black women and beauty, but it it actually looks at the fact that beauty is about power, like, um, and that if Black women were not considered the standard, like the standard of what is considered beautiful, and beauty is power, that has meant, what does that look like for Black women? It's also about the fact that they have been very dangerous destructive narratives that came out of slavery and colonialization with an agenda, these narratives, and that these narratives have now become so interwoven with how we see Black women and how we see Black culture, we don't even question them, but they're dangerous and they're destructive and they create a mindset in Black women and girls where they don't love themselves, where they have challenges embracing themselves. And also, it actually gives power to uh, to people over them. So, for example, just on a legal scale, it looks at the fact that um, black hair, something that has really defined us as very different from whiteness, has been used to punish and ostracize black women. You know, we have that that moment where we talk about Bo Derek, and that when the when a judge rule that you could discriminate against a black woman for her hair, that a black woman had to conform to what the, what the office required that she could not have her own natural style. The judge literally said, and this is a legal precedent that look at Bo Derek. She had braids in the movie 10 and she took her braids out. So hair is mutable. Why? 
is this black woman trying to be like Bo Derek and have braids. Never mind that black women for centuries have had braids that Bo Derek and the producers were mimicking black women, not the other way around. But that is used to actually cement in law the ability that if I go to the workplace with my hair in cornrows, my boss could say, you can change your hair because our policy is that we have to have this kind of hair. So this is the kind of stuff that's been happening to black women. And then people turn around and say, well, why are black women straightening their hair with chemicals? That's dangerous. They must be crazy. They must want to look white versus the fact that society has actually made it almost impossible up until a certain point for Black women to walk around in the hair that God gave them. Talking about the uh, the, the, the hair, it reminded me a few years ago, like when you'd go- Google search like professional hairstyles, you w- it would only be like yeah. white people and mm-hmm. their hair. I just quickly did a Google search now. I mean, it's still overwhelmingly uh, non-representative of, you know, people in the workforce. But, you know, there are a few. It's changing. But I got to tell you, when I was 15 years old, I put braids in my hair, went to work because I had a good job, I thought. And my boss told me that my hair was rude and sent me home, told me I had to change my hair if I wanted to work there. So these are the things. I mean, think about it how debilitating something like that is, especially since for me in not having straight hair, always wanting to have straight hair. And then I put braids in. So I had long like braids and I was like, look, I'm so I'm flat, looking so good. And then I go to work and then it's like, no, your hair is rude and you have to change it or you don't have a job. I mean, so, so, but then the other stereotypes, the Mammy, the Jezebel, the Sapphire, those stereotypes limit our movement into the world. I, I pointed out that, you know, Billie Eilish is phenomenally successful. Um, Lana Del Rey, um, Adele, Taylor Swift, none of these women who are terrifically successful have had to present a sexualized image where their legs are open and their butts high. But almost every single black female star in the music industry right now is completely sexualized. I can't name a a star, a big star that is black that isn't overly sexualized, right? You got Megan, you got um, um, like Beyonce, um, you have, um, you know, sorry, well, Doja, Doja Cat. I mean, Nicki Minaj, um, you know, the biggest, uh, sorry, the, the Latina and black one, um, um, you know, uh, sorry, she was, a, she was a stripper. Um, and she did the, the video WAP with, um, with Megan the Stallion. I mean, Cardi B, Cardi B. Yeah. Cardi, that's it. I was just thinking of yeah. something. <laughs> These are phenomenally successful women, incredibly sexualized. With your film, how did you approach this subject? How did you want to, you know, kind of showcase these hypocrisies that are shared within our uh, societies? What I discovered when I was doing research, I wanted to do a comprehensive look at this because I felt that we had to understand historically where these narratives came from. 
So I felt that was very important. I felt like I couldn't just do a film and say, oh, you know, black women are discriminated about by their hair. I had to look at the source of things, right? So that comprehensive look, for example, showed us that, um, well, uh, black women and their hair was considered ugly. And then um, Madam C.J. Walker came along and she came up with a, a methodology to press or straighten black hair. And then straightened hair was progress. Straightened hair was professional. So that is out of history, right? But then why were, was black hair considered ugly? Well, during slavery and colonial, colonialization, well, there was a narrative of the mammy, fat, older. She had her hair wrapped up because it was on tenable in some way right and that mammy was a caregiver and that narrative of black women caregiver i want to really go back and say where did this stuff come from and you look most of the movies that have been made up until recently about black women have been about you know essentially mammies about maids you know women who black women who are maids that's it. And then, you know, the same thing with the sexualization. So I wanted to go back and look at all of those things first. So that's what I started at. But I also wanted to look at present day. So how did these things manifest themselves today? What does that look like? What does Mammy, Jezebel and Sapphire look like today? You know, and, you know, it looks like the snip snap angry black woman oh my gosh she's crazy you know it looks like the very sexualized black woman and you know and 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 other than that it looks like that black woman who's fat and unattractive and she's just there though to complain but also serve so look in media up until recently like all the roles literally filtered through those kinds of narratives if you go back far enough, all of this is tied to like white supremacy and oppression. And it's just, it's sad seeing that it is so present still to the modern day. The unfortunate thing is that there's people invested in, ma in actually maintaining that. I mean, we've seen what's happened, you know, in the political landscape in America to some extent where people are like, Let's take out the knowledge or the information about some of these structures and call they call it critical race theory. Let's take it out. Let's not teach anybody this stuff. And let's just teach them like, you know, the, like the worst. The whitewashed yes, yes. version. And, and people are invested in doing this today. That's what's sad. That is what's sad. And, and so my film hopefully... It will be, will be a counterpoint to to some of this, you know. How do we continue to to move forward and, and dismantle some of these harmful and? I think it's allyship. It's it's actually it's allyship, you know. For one thing, I mean, I hope my film really contextualizes things so that people who aren't because these things are so ingrained, people don't really think about it. Like, you know what I mean? Because for example, for years, black folks were saying the criminal justice system targeted us and the dominant culture was saying, oh, that's because you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or what were you wearing, <laughs> you know? Or, you know, or what did you say to that officer? And then these cell phone reveals started to show us that no, <laughs> you know, um, they weren't at the wrong place at the wrong time. They were just jogging down the road, you know? And, and so 
I think that my film in some ways um, is, is a little bit like that in that it actually shows us some of these narratives and it's then for folks to say, I understand this better about black women. I understand like these narrow confines in which they're being defined. I understand how my behavior, like when I don't believe a black woman, when I don't stand up for a black woman, when I, when a sister is doing this and she's doing the most, but maybe it's, it's like, I'm, I might be the one that's threatened because she's like doing this thing. And I'm like, I'm not doing this thing. So it's really about understanding first and foremost, and then saying, I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to be there in your corner, or I'm just going to sit down and have a conversation with you. And that conversation is not going to be about what that sister can do for you, but how, who are you? What floats your boat? You know, what's going on in your world? And I, cause I, you know, I think ultimately I'm a filmmaker because I'm inherently a hopeful person. I truly believe that in spite of some of the things I'm seeing unfolding over the last four or five years, I truly believe that our progress is possible when it comes to um, race and when it comes to structural and systemic um, racism. I truly believe that um, we can really work and solve this. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've seen this, but like Saturday Night Live does this thing with Tom Hanks where um, he plays like a like a country bumpkin and there's other black like country bump like black folks. And then the whole thing shows us how much like white country bumpkins and black folks are completely similar. Like they like the same food. They're like, you know, they, you know, like oh, there's a whole host of things that they, they really do have a lot more connections than not. And so I'm, I'm so I don't know. I'm always hopeful that, um, that, that these, this getting together is communicating will actually expose and, and, and allow people to explore that they have more similarities than they have differences. Well, exactly. When you just meet people and get to know them, like, of course there's like cultural differences. Like uh, when I uh, first started dating my partner, uh, learning about like Filipino culture, Filipino foods, or like when I would um, use certain terms, like my, the funniest story is when I, just couldn't find anything. I was driving around all these communities and I just uh, told her, I was like, oh, uh, it took me on a wild goose chase day. She's like, why are you chasing geese? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's just a, such a cute thing. And so there's things like that, that I've shared, like things that I thought were just common knowledge and just ingrained, but just those different cultural aspects. But like, just because there's differences doesn't mean that's, that's a bad thing. Like you can learn from each other. Yeah, and that's and that's the pivotal thing I think it's to learn from each other. I mean, there are there must be a whole plethora of things about her culture that you don't know about how those communities form and what is valuable to those communities as a, you know, as a Filipino woman. Um and it's about 
um, you know, the problem with patriarchy, it's always perceived that the knowledge flowed from one way. And, and the thing is that it actually doesn't. And so when you start embracing these differences, you know, um, and when you start embracing that there might be certain knowledge, I mean, I always look to my mom who has all this, like, um, like this country remedies, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and she's always like, okay, yeah. you got COVID. You got to gargle your throat. You got to take this. You got to take ginger and this. And you got to make this. And, you, and so there's always this stuff my mom's always telling me you got to do. And it's very different from North American society. They, you know, they, they there is a real, um, uh, like the first line for her is always something natural from the ground or whatever. And, you know, and I, I've, I've come to understand because I mean, we might be of the same flesh and so forth, but I was raised in Canada and I have a very North American idea about medicine and so forth. But then at some point I start to realize, wait a minute, you know, my mom, what she was, what she was taught from her grandmother whose grandmother taught her some of that stuff is super valuable. And that's, that, that and that's the um embracing of you know things that are different because people assume that because I was raised by a Caribbean woman that like I didn't want mac and cheese um like when I was growing up I didn't want like the the baked mac and cheese that was like a, a like a you know I, I wanted craft mac and cheese right oh, <laughs> right the, the college oh, kids. Listen, food. I was like, I was like, this is ambrosia. What? Now, of course, I'm like, give me the baked mac and cheese because it's like gourmet. Um, but the point is, is that um, we're, we, this this dominant culture, um, you know, patriarchy, white supremacy, all of these things, it has to be dismantled, and, and the voices of others have to be uh, brought into that space, and so that we're actually sharing and learning from each other and communicating and. I think for me, my film is about communicating something, important things, uh, some great important things about Black women. What do you think we can do to keep our media and society accountable for, you know, moving towards progress and acceptance and representation? You got to hold them accountable. Um, you have to challenge them. You have to say, you know, I, I did an article with the, the Globe interview, interviewed me, um, Sarah Ty Black, who's just a, a really wonderful journalist. And she asked me and I said, you know, we have to hold, we have to have gatekeepers and we have to hold the gatekeepers accountable. And, um, you know, so what that means is that we have to challenge it. So rather than saying, oh, I have my film and it's doing really great or whatever. And I'm, I've arrived. I, I know I'm saying I'm, I'm actually putting it out there that we have to hold these people, the decision makers accountable. So what we have to do is that sometimes it might not be in our full interest to actually hold people accountable, but we must do this. You know, it's like my children hold me accountable. They say, mom, dad, you ruined this planet for us. The environment sucks. We can't, we can't maybe get homes. You know, we don't, you know, they're, they're, they're worried, you know, and my children are holding me accountable. And so what that means is that when, you know, two of them, one of them became a vegetarian and one of them became vegan, we embraced that. And we then uh, like shifted our eating uh, habits, which by the way, for being Caribbean, it's like, they're like, are you crazy? Um, 
So that's me being accountable as much as I can. So we have to hold, because for example, my children hold me accountable. And so we must say to the institution, also we have to look at what was promised. What are people saying that they intend to do? And if they're not doing it, we got to go back to them and say, hey man, you said this, like, you know, we're, we're not seeing this. You know, we also have to, to be honest, we have to actually stop this madness where people think that there is no truth. And what I mean is like, it's this truth, it's that truth. No, no, no. Some things are true. And, and for those things, we can stop explaining away and, you know, like, um, there's too much acceptance of falsehood. And when we come across it, we have to say, this is what's happening. We have to stand up for what is right. We have to stand up for each other and we have to stand up for, you know, uh, you know, what is a true thing? Is there a systemic problem with black men when it, in the criminal just, justice system? Absolutely. Do they get um, different sentences for the same crime? Absolutely. You know, are they profiled at a higher level? Absolutely. These are truths. And so what are we willing to do to make that not be the case, right? And, and that's what I'm trying to say is that so we have to really hold our gatekeepers um, uh, responsible for what they say that they're going to do. And we have to also stand up when we see a truth being dismantled or broken or, or we're creating some alternative version of reality to justify injustice. We got to stand together on these things because... You know, the way things are going, you can't, we can't just let things continue. Like the status quo is just not acceptable. Like subjects of desire, it's, it's a first step in kind of uh, bringing awareness to, uh, you know, the problems that we're seeing within our, uh, our media and, and society. And now people can see it and they can be inspired to work together towards greater things. That's my hope. That is my, that's definitely one of my goals and hopes. You know, I want, you know, young black girls, for example, to watch this film and understand that they're not at fault, that they, the, the things that they're feeling are actually true and they come from a certain place. I want young white girls to say, okay, this is my friend and this is how I can be a better friend because now I understand certain things about, you know, what's happening here, you know, pretending that these things don't, exist or whatever i you know i i want those things to be you know to fall away and so yes i i'm i'm hopeful and i know that in the screenings that i've had and you know i the conversations people have brought to me about the film i do think that it's actually having some great impacts in this way and that i mean as a filmmaker to have impact to know that people are watching your work and and seeing value and actually getting something from it that they can bring to their lives i think it's it's very powerful to me and i, I feel very very grateful for that well jen it's been so great talking with you i've had a lot of fun uh learning about your life and just you know discussing like 
the real things in reality that we need to be focusing on and challenging. Where can people go to find out more about uh, Hungry Eyes Media and Subjects of Desire? Okay, so Subjects of Desire is going to be on TVO on Feb 1st. And um, I believe um, it, there's a couple of repeat dates um, in the U.S. It's going to be at, on Stars on Feb 26. Um, Hungry Eyes Media. We are hungryeyes.ca. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, the trailer was so good. I, I'm really excited. I I've just projects like this, like challenging your your own thoughts. Like, grow. I I grew up in Winkler, like a small rural town. Getting out of there, like. I realized like, wow, I had a lot of ingrained biases that I, I never realized. And, you know, getting challenged on those and, you know, see just interacting with people has been like. I think people just have to get out of their spaces. You know, this is one of the, uh, the challenges of COVID, of course, is that it's keeping us really insular. And I know that like my mom was like a single mom raising three kids. And so we didn't have a lot of money. And when I was old enough, I we started, like, I think when I was 15, we went to Montreal on our own, my sister and I. And then we went to New York, and then we were, like, in Miami. And and, and then when I got older, I was able to travel, travel to Europe. And traveling, and, of course, going back to Jamaica, but traveling in these spaces, talking to people, finding out about how people live, it really shrinks a lot of the misunderstandings. And so it's great that, you know, you speak of your own journey and like and acknowledging that there were these biases because they are, because that society puts them into you. Kids are not born, you know this, they're not born you know, like uh, biased against someone. Society does this. So, but I do think stepping out of your comfort zone, reaching out to someone across the aisle, sometimes it's actually scary and sometimes it might not work out, but that, you know, I mean, I reached out to black people who have not been necessarily welcoming to me, uh, but I've also reached out to black people who have been incredibly welcoming and who have made my life a better place to be in, to be in this space. So, you know, that's the thing I just keep saying to people, you just got to push yourself to get out of your comfort zone. And not just the the mindsets of learning different people, their their, their thoughts, beliefs, and experiences, but oh, cultural food. <laughs> well, that's the exciting part. T- today, at, I should say, today at the office, we have a, a young lady who's Nigerian. And so I've never tried Nigerian food, right? And so, like, my partner bought a bunch of, so, you know, so we're, you know, it's like some of it, it's, you know, you're going to love it. And some of it, you're going to be like, Mm-mm. but at least you're trying it. <laughs> yep. that That's something I've, I've been so excited about. Like, there's so many, like, really cool restaurants uh, right where I, I live in Winnipeg. And, you know, when things open up a little bit more, uh-huh. got to check them all out. Got to check them all out. That's right. Get out there in the bag. Get that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so fun. I, I, and I have to go, too. Um, when I go to small towns in Ontario, for example, every once in a while, you go into a small town and there'll be a restaurant and then they'll have, like, some kind of like Caribbean dish. And of course, white uh, owners. And it's like, and then you find out that they came from Kensington market, which is like this really cultural hub in in Toronto. And then, and, and, you know, and, but they've gone to this small town and then they, they're bringing this really cool um, ethnic food into that community. And I, I love that. Those are my favorite experiences when I go out of my, you know, into, into, you know, different spaces. Cause I'm a downtown Toronto girl. 
Um, but you go to these rural spaces and then you find like these gems or like people who make butter or, you know, people who bake stuff like, I don't know. So food is to me is like, it'll save us all. <laughs> if you have any stories you'd like us to share or communities we should highlight, leave a comment on our social media or reach out to us on our website. I'm Ryan Funk. This was You Talk and have yourself a good one.